What's up, freaks? It's your boy Marty here to introduce Rip 354 of TFTC. Really can't do uh, the interview justice with an intro. So I sat down with Lord Miles Routledge, up and coming adventure. Enjoy it. That's all I have to say. This rip was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. We're draining the exchanges, freaks. Get your coins off of a centralized exchange and into a two or three multi-sig vault with Unchained. Uh, they're running a deal. Uh, they're waiving for the vault product for the concierge onboarding for the vault. They're waiving the uh, $1,000 Bitcoin purchase for anybody who doesn't want to do that immediately. Uh, and they're just going with a $250 uh, setup fee and concierge onboarding experience. Uh, if you use the code TFTC, you're going to get $50 off, bring that down to $200. Uh, and they're also uh, dropping uh, the onboarding onto their IRA down to $250 and also offering $50 off uh, that um, that onboarding concierge experience as well. Uh, using the code TFTC with the IRA, you'll still have the setup fee if you decide to set it up. Um, but their consultations uh, are significantly reduced with this deal. We're draining the exchanges, freaks. It's time. Don't let these centralized... Third-party exchanges hold your Bitcoin. You really have Bitcoin IOUs, single points of failure. We've seen Celsius get rugged, Voyager get rugged, 3AC rugged the world. Don't get rugged. Train the exchange. Make sure that you're holding your own keys unchained and their vault product allow you to do that and have uh, peace of mind. I'm a customer. I'm a happy customer. And I have the peace of mind. Join me in the peace of mind world. Train the exchange. Promo ends September 8th. Use the code TFTC. You'll get $50 off. Go to unchained.com slash concierge. This was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. Brains. Brains is here. Uh, just make you a better miner at the end of the day. Uh, they have the Brains OS Plus firmware, which helps you idiot-proof your mining operation. If you have an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not using it, you're an idiot because you're leaving sats on the table. If you download Brains OS Plus firmware on an ASIC that's compatible with it, it's going to help you stack more sats. Only idiots don't stack more sats. So Brains is here to help idiot-proof your mining operation. They also have Brains Pool. It'll be officially Brains Pool in about 11 days here. Uh, the oldest mining pool in Bitcoin's existence still going strong. They're working on Stratum V2 to further distribute the mining pool layer. Uh, yeah. Go check it all out, brains.com, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Not only do they have all these products, if you use Brains OS Plus firmware and you're pointing at Brains Pool, 0% pool fees, and then go check out insights.brains.com too uh, for all your mining data uh, and calculator needs. Mr. It was also brought to you by our good friends at HODL. HODL, HODL, HODL is here to bring you a lending platform that's peer-to-peer, -peer, no KYC, no AML. Uh, what you do is you put your Bitcoin up, as collateral on a two or three multi-sig escrow, you hold one key, your counterparty in the loan holds one key, and HODL HODL holds the third key. Since you have one key, you have visibility into the escrow account so you know that your sats aren't being rehypothecated. And if you're paying your stablecoin loan back plus the interest, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Again, Bitcoin up and two or three multi-sig escrow as collateral. You get stablecoins in return. You go spend those. Uh, and as long as you're paying that back plus the interest, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Reminder, no KYC, no AML. Go to lend dot hodl hodl.com peer-to-peer baby 
This trip is also brought to you by good friends at Upstream Data. Upstream Data is here uh, to basically take care of your mining needs, needs whether you're an at-home miner or uh, a company that's mining at scale upstream on the oil field at a utility. For the at-home miners, they have their black boxes, which allow you to put miners in a box, mine at your house, outside your house, ideally. Uh, you close the box and it takes care of the sound and it's heat controlled to make sure that your miners aren't burning out. Uh, it really is a much needed uh, tool if you're mining at home, especially if you're worried about your wife or your HOA being concerned about the noise. ASICs are really loud. They go, <laughs> put the ASICs in the black box. You close the black box and it goes from <laughs> to beautiful thing use the code freaks you'll get five percent off a black box uh and they're also selling black box bundles if you want to get asics as well upstream will help you do that go to shop.upstreamdata.ca to check out the black box and then on the back end if you're an industrial miner if you're an oil and gas operator utility company who's making a lot of profits as energy prices are going up you're looking to diversify into uh, an alternative revenue stream uh bitcoin mining is there for you and upstream data is here to build out the infrastructure for you get the data centers You'll get the generators. You'll get the miners. I'm a happy customer of their hash shot. I have a 50 kilowatt hash shot. It's been running flawlessly uh, for many months now, at least uh, coming up on a year. Uh, no problems at all. Just have to change the oil. Uh, Steve just posted a picture of their first ever Bitcoin mine that got released in the oil field five years ago. Still producing Bitcoin today. Uh, still chugging where it was initially launched. Uh, it, these things are very durable. Upstream's building with miners in mind, they know what they're doing. Very high quality product. Uh, go to upstreamdata.ca, tell them that TFTC sent you if you're gonna get a hash hut. Last but not least, this rip was brought to you by our good friends at Join Crowd Health, or excuse me, Crowd Health. You go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC. You'll see the special deal that we have running with them, which is if you use the code TFTC, you're gonna get your first six months of payments for your Crowd Health community. Uh, down to $99 a month. It's a significant discount. And what what are we doing here? Crowd Health is an alternative to health insurance. It's not health insurance. So it's uh, community-funded healthcare. So what you do is you sign up for a Crowd Health account, like I, my family did, uh, and you pay a monthly fee, and that goes into a dedicated bank account that you control, and you can always uh, take the money out of whenever you see fit. Uh, you build that account up. If you ever have a medical expense, you tell Crowd Health, "Hey, I'm going to the doctor." They say, "All right, get the bill." show it to us, you, you get the bill, you show it to Crowd Health. they go, they negotiate with the doctor. And then if you do have to pay an expense, all you do is you pay the first $500 and then uh, the bill goes out to the community and then gets crowdsourced. You get Crowd Health. 100% of the, the bills that have come to Crowd Health have been funded by the community. Um, and again, I think this is a, a beautiful way to uh, have more sovereign, more transparent interactions with the healthcare system. The fact that uh, you have a dedicated health advocate at Crowd Health is really reassuring. I have one person that I talk to in regards to my family uh, when we're doing um, any of our healthcare needs. Uh, I, I'm able to hit up Maggie, say, "Hey, uh, here's what we need. How can like how should we go about this?" And they're there. It's personal. It's not just some call center. It's not a black box like health insurance. They're there to fight for you to lower your healthcare costs. At the end of the day, it's a very uh, incredible model, in my opinion. I'm very happy to be a Crowd Health customer myself. Uh, go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC to check it out and see how it all works. Enjoy this rip, freaks. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. 
If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Uh, plastered it, and then he stuck fake brick on. So the, the listing photos when I did reviewing had a real brick, and they decided, no, that's not enough. It's going to spend extra money and make people worse. So um, that's the federal government. This is, oh, this is the federal government. Places. Pretty much, yeah. In a metaphor, you know. Yeah. No, it's very fiat of the government to take down, plaster over the real brick, then put up a, a paper brick. Well, it's very indicative in, uh, of the the rot that our fiat monetary system has brought the world. We're, re we're recording now, by the way. Yes, that sounds good. So I'm sitting down with Lord, Lord Miles. What is That's up, me. dude? What? Yeah, not too much. Just uh, enjoying myself. How are you, mate? I'm doing well. I'm very happy that... Uh, our friend Lewis introduced us. I've been getting acquainted with your content and your your journey on the internet, particularly YouTube, for the last week. You're doing some of the most exciting stuff I've seen on the internet in some time. Just got, <laughs> That's one way to put it. <laughs> so you, you just got back from Afghanistan, what, a week ago? Yeah, less than a week, actually. I think four days now. You know, just casually uh, went for a holiday in Afghanistan, as you do. Yeah, and you were uh, hanging out with the Taliban as well. What was that like? Yeah, so turned up. Um, I was with a friend, by the way, from this English podcast called Lotus Eaters, and I was showing him around. And I've been about three times now. So when I turned up and saw the Taliban, I was like, oh, hey, bro, you know, just said hi, uh, shook his hands, just winked at him. Um, it made my friend terrified, and it kind of made me realize these people were hated for the last. 20 years almost, you know, demonized, you know, satanic and everything. And I met them and they were actually kind of the average IRS member or, um, or the average government's uh, personnel. You know, they were actually quite hospitable for what they were. So um, just ended up chilling with the Taliban. Actually went shooting them later on as well. Yeah, I saw that. Your your trigger uh, etiquette is not on par with, with what many... Uh... Of the ta Taliban or, or or gun advocates here in the, the United States would deem as uh, as as safe, but you'll learn. Thank you. I, I actually think with how the Taliban actually shoots and everything and their discipline, I think I'm slightly above them. But by American standards, no idea. So hopefully, I can pop down to Texas and do some learning from some professionals. Yeah, uh, you, you, hopefully you get down here in a month, month or two. We'll uh, we'll take you to the range. It's a bunch of ranches out here. With a bunch of big okay. guns, so we can go shoot. And yeah, so back to like, so, so what? Again, I just got acquainted with you. I'm introduced to you last week, and have been falling down your content rabbit hole. I don't know whether to describe you as a modern day adventurer, a modern day Gonzo journalist, somebody who's just infinitely curious and wants to go explore the world. How would you? How did you end up making these videos of you traveling the world? So we're talking about Afghanistan, you went into Ukraine when the war started popping off there earlier this year. Uh, you've been uh, border jumping in many other parts of the world. Why do you have this wanderlust and the, the need to uh, video videotape everything you're doing and share it with the world? Well, 
I honestly just think it's because I can. And I find that hilarious sometimes, you know, um, you the whole world screaming at you that this is the worst idea. And then when you do it, it's nothing but awards and smiley faces in general. And even one adventure, I think for most people would be something you speak about, you know, as a grand, uh, grand uh, dad, you know, do your grandchildren and so on. You know, when you're old, those wise tales you want to tell one day. And I think I'm packed with them and that kind of motivates me to carry on doing that. So how it begun was I was in the middle of COVID and I didn't want to get vaccinated, right? Since um, it was a peak of it. So every single country required vaccination to go on holiday. It was right before my graduation at university. And I wanted a small adventure. So the only country that didn't require a vaccination was Afghanistan. And of course, uh, this was a few few months before the Taliban takeover, but no one actually knew that. Everyone thought it, it was going to hold up for years upon years. So when I flew there and landed, about three or four days later, the Taliban took over the ball and I made national headlines because I was a shit posting throughout to excuse my language. I was just enjoying myself, hanging out with people, SAS special forces in a compound, uh, watching gunfire happen. I was seeing everything unfold and was really positive about it. And I've got to admit, I've had the best sleep of my life in war zones, such as that, and actually the most enjoyable times of my life. And I thought, screw it, um, why not to make a career out of this? I've got a small following now, maybe it can grow. And I think here we are. So why, why are you uh, getting enjoyment out of all this? What what thrills you or fulfills you in these yeah, war so zones? First, so at first, it's a small adrenaline rush. So I can imagine someone as a physical man such as yourself, right? When you go to the gym, if you do something physical, you get a little bit of a dolphin shooting to your brain. And then when you pair that with a purpose, such as um, I don't know, climbing a mountain or jumping a border or going to a certain country and, and doing something in a specific amount of time, it's this ultimate rush that most people who sit behind a desk nine to five every single day, you know, being controlled by the government with a wage cut job, just don't understand. I think that's how we originally lived. And that's why the British back in the days were so great. They would venture out and do really interesting things. And it really is contagious. And I just want to chase that feeling for the rest of my life. Yeah. It seems like you're doing it. Yeah. Well, for now, we'll see. Um, we'll see if I'm in some um, ISIS execution video or something. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in my next five Let's hope not. We do not want to see a Lord Miles execution video, but you're doing these adventures and it is, I don't know if it's intentional, but you are producing what someone deemed to be quality journalism while you're doing it. You're getting an actual perspective that many are not getting from the mainstream media and they're, they're getting it from some adventure young British gentleman who's, who's just following an itch that he has to go explore the world. Oh, thank you. You can't get uh, quality journalism from mainstream nowadays. Never will happen. And ever since I went to these places, you probably realized this long ago, but I've just realized after a year or two, I can't, I can't trust a single thing the media says about any country or group or anything really. Like even the most solid ones, um, like even the most solid ideas that you get taught about a country, you just go there, it's completely different. Like, um, I don't believe anything in any newspaper anymore. Neither do I. Yeah, I mean, you've come to the right podcast. We're we're very highly skeptical of the Thank mainstream you. media and, and the narratives. That's part of the reason we moved to Texas. There was a lot of pressure in the northeast part of the country here in the United States to get vaccinated, and I uh, just did not feel comfortable with it. To each their oh. own. Your body, your yeah. choice. What you want to do. Just don't 
try to force it on me. Exactly. But people can easily just uh, cross the border into, um, into Texas or Mexico uh, without vaccinations, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, we have the, uh, the governor of Texas right now is trolling the rest of the United States. Uh, he's putting a lot of uh, the people who are crossing the border illegally onto buses and shipping them up to Washington, D.C. and New York City. And people are freaking oh, out up there. When he leaves off. Yeah, then they freak out. Yes. And so, we saw shipping Californians up there too. <laughs> so, like speaking of like quality journalism, I mean, you mentioned shooting with the Taliban. You were in Kabul when the Taliban bum-rushed that city and eventually took over. What did you see on the ground? I mean, your latest video you posted was shooting with the Taliban. You went to a weapons market and easily purchased a gun. And that's, I think, one of the biggest lingering questions in the minds of Americans, particularly after the disaster that was the uh, the exit from Afghanistan from our armed forces, which had been there for the better part of two decades. One of the biggest headlines with that was the fact that we left a bunch of our weapons behind uh, and they, oh. were, they were simply just taken over by the Taliban. And so when you were in that, that weapons market, were, were those American military weapons that you were coming into contact with? Yeah, if it wasn't for sanctions, I'd be a millionaire right now. So those US weapons, no joke. So I've heard about night vision goggles in the US, I've been good ones with, you know, four different sections coming out of it, are about 20,000 US dollars, right? I've looked at the prices, 20, 25K. I was finding the exact ones with everything intact for about $300. <laughs> And I found 500 units. You can just multiply those two numbers together if I ship them to the US legally somehow. Millionaire. But it's impossible to do. Hence the price. Hence no one needs them anymore. No war, right? But there were US military gear all left behind. All the Taliban wearing um, all the little free plates left behind too. Um, the American uh, convoys and Humvees, you know, that cost half a million of everyone's hard-earned tax dollars. I got offered $15,000 and I can drive it right off the lot like it was a new SUV or something. What? <laughs> yeah, legit. Uh, I, I would honestly export it. I, I would, if the US came to me and said, hey, can you get our stuff back? I honestly could do that. Um, the only thing is, it's just impossible to get out with the sanctions. I can't get to Pakistan. I can't get to Iran. Uh, Tajikistan's a no go. You know, you can just buy up the entire army there for one fiftieth of the price of something in the US. Who's controlling the the marketplace for these these weapons and this equipment? Yeah. So in the YouTube video, I met this one guy, and he was kind of a war dog. So he bought assault weapons uh, to and from Pakistan during the Taliban war. He was actually wanted by the US for five years, and they can never find him. They can never find him. Of course, I just rocked up and asked where he is, and they told me within ten minutes. So you know, great US intelligence. But I found him, and he's the one who. He's in Jalalabad, a town near the Pakistan border. He has about 50 million worth of U.S. armory and everything just in the back somewhere, little asset hidey holes, and he can just sells them whenever he needs some extra money. He's loaded. Um, then he just funds various groups around Afghanistan and so on. He just doesn't really care. So that's where your tax dollars went. And then half it's gone to ISIS now because they're buying up because Saudis funded them. Um, and half it's going towards the Taliban. China bought them up too. So all the uh, R&D that went into that technology, uh, China just bought it for pennies on the dollar and reverse engineered it. Same with probably Pakistan too and 50 other countries that want the American secrets. 
so that's a fate of all the weapons left behind that could have been destroyed. They weren't, but they could have been. Uh, lovely. As a, an American taxpayer, I feel like, like my tax dollars were well spent just handing over very uh, secretive IP to China. Yeah. Do you, do, you remember, do you remember when the, te- um, I think it was the Boston Tea Party uh, staged a revolution you know, against the British because of a 2% tea tax or something? And now Americans pay like 37% income tax plus 50 other taxes to go on top of it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just absurd. And then this happens due to Biden. It's absurd. And we just, we just passed the inflation reduction act here in the United States where uh, they're somehow going to reduce inflation by spending $800 billion, 80 billion of which is being used to spin up a small army of IRS agents to come. Or or, or mate, you you misunderstand though. It's called the um, inflation uh, reduction act. So you must redact inflation. Of course, you know, it's in the name. How could that be wrong? Well, the Patriot Act. (laughs) Very patriotic to to patriot the Patriot Act was very uh, you cared about small businesses if you signed the CARES Act. It's uh, I wrote about this in the newsletter last week. It's uh, it's like here in the United States, particularly, we've been living through one large humiliation ritual for the last few decades, where those in charge will pass these acts, these laws that do the exact opposite of what they. They portray themselves to be doing. It's uh, it's, we we live in a clown world, Miles. It's a late stage, crumbling empire activity that we have here. We're we're literally taking the playbook from the fourth and fifth century, uh, crumbling Roman Empire, and just replaying it here in the twenty first century. It's really crazy times we live in, which is why I think like the work that you're doing, even if it's just a personal rush and. Uh, again, a, t- a tap to scratch your an attempt to scratch your own itch to to go on adventures. I think highlighting these stories and giving this perspective is extremely important to help people in the West, not only here in the United States. I'm sure uh, there's a bunch of sheepish normies walking around the UK as well to wake up and say, "Hey, like what you're oh, yeah. what you're being force fed via the mainstream is not exactly uh, not exactly what is happening on the ground here." And which is like fascinating because you're, uh, you're you're a good Catholic. You're a very devout Catholic. You went into uh, an area occupied by uh, an Islamic. Uh, I don't want to say faction. People who are trying to run the country under Islamic Sharia law, and yes, you you, uh, you walked out intact, not uh, not harmed in any way. So what was it like being a Catholic in this Islamic yeah, country? Um, so I wore a cross around my neck. I got a few fine looks. Um, no one ever stopped me. I was fine with that. Um, sometimes I stuck inside my shirts, very rarely though, but I was wearing it around my neck a lot of the time too. And I also brought my Bible with me. So they looked for my bags when I came into the country. Didn't bat an eye, saw the Bible, whatever. Um, they understand that foreigners are a little bit different and they're used to it after the last 20 years. So I've been asked to plead fine to some degree, but there were some parts where they said, hey, if they, if they see your cross in this little small countryside, they'll basically just stone you to death. And I was like, okay, <laughs> well, great way to go. You can go as a martyr, basically. Yeah, I, I am unconditionally not compromising on anything Christian ever. Yeah. Does that drive but, yeah. a lot of what you do? Yeah, exactly. Like, um, I remember this one guy, he's an excellent Catholic in South Sudan. He's 
a refugee lives on the border in literally a mud hut, right? Like you see in the um, the sad sap, uh, you know, commercials saying go fund this uh, village or whatever. This guy is a good Catholic and everything, and I, I want to try and help him out. So that's my plan for my next trip. But um, I, I do sacrifice money quite a bit. For what I do, so I, I've broken even this year. If I'm being honest, and it's always good for a good Christian value. Like I'm, I'm funding some under underground movements. Uh, you know, Christians in some countries that where they would just be executed if they got found out. If that makes sense. So you can probably guess which country. <laughs> um, I'm trying to do as much as I can in the background. But no matter what, I'm never gonna let my faith be uh, stomped on at all, ever. That's incredible. No, I mean as a as a Catholic. Oh, you do the same. No, yeah, as a Catholic myself, I think it's important to stay true to those values. And again, I think even though there was one threat of stoning, I think it is still miraculous. I mean, there is this perception, I think, over here in the West, if you if you go over into these areas as a non-Muslim, you're you're going to be immediately murdered and stoned to death. But it doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like um, a certain group of people are trying to pierce together, uh, so we don't focus on the elites. If that makes sense, right? Yeah. So, what do you, what do you, what is your overarching perspective on the state of the world in terms of the elites and the relationship of the common man with the elite and and what they're and they're trying to do? This, if they're trying to do anything, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. Do you remember? photo it's, it's from a few years ago but it's when hillary first walked into a normal house and she saw a kitchen and a photographer snapped a photo yeah yeah you know which one she saw a normal house and her, her face was shocked you know seeing what people live like and these people have a disconnect between the average human and you know their elite friends and everything it's like a movie elysium they live in their own little ecosphere their bubble and they want to make it stay that way. You know, rules for me and not for you. Sorry, rules for uh, you and not for me. Um, same with electric cars, same with the carbon tax they're trying to implement. You know, I can go on for hours, but at the end of the day, the world's in a sad, sorry place. And it's because we're all turning away from God. It's it's the satanic spirit that has been brought into the world ever since the 1960s. The decline of religion, mass immigration, um, hyperinflation, um, sending kids to school instead of homeschooling with traditional good moral values, constant war, uh, high taxation, and so on. It's just, it's going to get worse before it gets better, but hopefully people still have enough sense of them where they reach a snapping point and then things change. But I'm a bit wary that things might not even get better. I think it'll be a slow decay. And then obviously uh, we get the book of Revelations at the end times. Yeah. Well, that's why we do what we do here. We do think that there are avenues through which we can begin to claw back our civil liberties and bring back sanity and fight back these demonic forces. That's one thing I do say a lot on this show is that I, I, I do believe that there are evil demonic forces out there that are simply toying with humanity and again, uh, subjecting us to these weird humiliation rituals. I mean, the COVID lockdowns being one of the most egregious and in your face, literally with the mask mandates and stuff like that. Uh, there is definitely a dark cloud over the world right now, but there are beams of light that are showing themselves. That's why we talk about Bitcoin here. We think Bitcoin is a very powerful tool to take away uh, a lot of their power. He's 
demonic forces power, which stems from their ability to control money at the end of the day. If you can control money, you control food, you control energy, you control people. And money exactly. is at the bottom of those three things. And so Bitcoin and why we champion it here at TFTC, and I've been writing about it and talking about it for well over five years now publicly, uh, because I think truly there is a way to fix these massive problems that exist throughout the world. You just need to fix the money. That's why we have a big neon sign. You'll see it when you come down to Austin. Fix the money, fix the world. Absolutely, because at the end of the day, they can't turn off the internet. And if we create a little ecosystem that grows with time, that's exactly what you're doing. They realize they have no control, and then they have to play ball with us and compromise and so on. It is essentially class warfare. I'm no communist. I'm far from it. But at the same time, you know, they've gone arguments with the party side, and that's what Bitcoin brings in. It, it levels the playing field for every single person. I mean, look at who controls the banks in general. They have a common theme, and from there, you know, they have an agenda. Pretend you're, uh, you know, a billionaire, trillionaire, whatever, and you're clearly narcissistic or even a psychopath because to get so rich, you have to be extremely ruthless, right? So you have to be the top person in strategy and ruthlessness. You have to sacrifice everything. I know you like materialistic things, like, like a satanic being, right? And then from there, what do you want after money? You've all the money of the world. You want power. And therefore, you restrict and strangle the average person through you know, financial schemes and getting rid of fiscal cash. But then they realize and they panicked and basically poop their pants when they saw Bitcoin. And that's the only way out. I think that's the only hope for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think you're going to need it, particularly. I mean, are you willing to disclose what it was like getting home from Afghanistan from you? You? Oh, absolutely. So some people say, oh, I got banned from PayPal or I got banned from eBay. I got banned from the entirety of the EU. The entirety? I thought the <laughs> last I spoke to you, I thought it was only half the EU. It's the entire EU now? Oh, it's pretty much the entirety of the EU. I looked it up. I think there's like five countries that I'm not banned from. Um, I think the EU, UK, which isn't part of the EU, of course, luckily. Um, but there's a special economic zone where you couldn't travel freely within the EU, you know, um, when you get into this one section. Sorry. And then, you know, that's how immigrants get around really easily when they get across to Greece or whatever. But I'm not allowed to fly there. So when I when I was transitioning back from Afghanistan, I, I recently had food poisoning, throwing my brains out. I was in that hospital in Dubai. And then I flew to Greece as a transit, right? I wasn't even in the airport. I was in a transit-free zone. They scanned my passports, a little beeping sign went off, they gave me this, this devilish look and pulled me to one side. And they interrogated me for eight hours, like I'm some sort of criminal, right? And they can't tell me why I'd be denied entry, but he said, oh, you're banned from the entirety of this zone. And I go, what do you mean? They're like, yeah, Greece, Germany, Poland, France, Belgium, uh, Greece, everywhere, everywhere. And I go, okay, I'm meant to go home. And they're like, we'll deport you back to Dubai and we'll make you pay like 400 pounds for a direct flight, which is like $500. And I'm thinking, well, wasn't our trial? No, there wasn't a trial. They can't give me the reason to. They call up um, some fancy bureaucrats. They don't have a reason. Um, so how the system works, they do a report. So someone creates an alert and then it gets put in the system and implemented instantly, right? There's no trial or you know, writing to you or a courtesy phone call. You don't find out until it's too late. So, you know, we want to screw you over. And eventually after loads of arguing and, you know, fist banging, they let me on the plane just come back to the UK this one time, right? 
but I can't even transit through any country. So I'm going to have to become a Syrian migrant and just fly to, say, Croatia and then cross the border illegally just to see my girlfriend for Christmas. Yeah, I'm banned from the entirety EU, and I don't know why. What do you think? I honestly think it's because I went shooting with the Taliban. The only hint I've got is the the rule went to effect on the 21st, and that's when I posted a photo of me shooting with the Taliban, like a hint. So I think some really nerdy, you know, soy-filled, low-testosterone man saw this, just like started crying to himself, I'm having fun, and then just submitted a claim because he's as high up as some bureaucrats. So now I've broken with a bunch of lawyers and... Hopefully I'm going to get fixed. But three years banned from the EU for goofing off. You know, I'd be commended for this in, the, uh, in America even, or even um, during the good old English days with the empire, right? Yeah. No, it is, like, what can we do? He's like, if, like, that's like the weird thing about this particular situation. Like, you went over there, and you didn't, I mean, you didn't kill anybody. You didn't sell any drugs. You did shoot some guns, but seems to be legal in Afghanistan. And you... I even got a weapons permit. I even got a weapons permit from the Taliban. It was as special as it gets. Yeah. And what they don't want the common man to get over there and actually see things for himself. It seems like an intimidation tactic, if anything. Yeah, exactly. I kind of hope they push me further because I'll push back, trust me. Um, <laughs> I might double down, you know. Um Worst comes to worst, I have to go full banana republic in the third world countries and then gain enough money to say I have FU money and just circulate around those things. So I'm honestly thinking about starting a gold mining um, industry in Afghanistan, create some jobs, export to Pakistan, they can't control that. Everyone's happy, apart from the EU and the Rothschilds and all that. <laughs> well, that's, again, you can do gold mining or, like we've been talking about, we can help you monetize your content with Bitcoin. Uh, which is the digital gold, much better than gold. Exactly, yeah. That'd be good. And then, you know, they're going to be crying in some office round somewhere, praising Moloch, you know, praying on my downfall. <laughs> Moloch, this one got away. Uh, <laughs> you, so, I mean, being on this list, being banned from the EU, going into these war-torn areas. I mean, let's talk about Ukraine and your journalism there. What What was that like in the beginning of the year? How did you oh, end up there? Oh, <laughs> um, casually as you do. So I, I hear about Ukraine happening and I think, okay, I'll get there far in advance. So I'm there on day one, right? I want to see things pop up. I want to see the fireworks. So two weeks before I turn up and so I go straight to Donetsk, right? And I go to all the steady areas where the, uh, you know, the uh, war line is as it's about to break out. And I see nothing's happening, and I think after two weeks, well, maybe it's a false alarm, whatever. And then I fly back. And then six hours after getting home, I wake up to about 20 missed calls. War had begun. So again, I get down to the airport, and I get back on the last train from Poland into um, into Kiev. And then, boom, I'm, I'm right at the forefront. I go all the way to a town called Kharkiv, which is the most strategic, important town apart from Kiev, right? And I'm just meeting up with some Ukrainian special forces. They detain me thinking I'm a spy. They just check out all my stuff and say, actually, you're kind of legit, fair enough. Hang out with us in the um, in the school building. So they occupied a school, right, in, um, or their base. And they're using their phone flashlights, uh, like the front end of the phone the screen, to kind of look through it, uh, look through the actual uh, school. 
to navigate. Um, and they were just eating food together. Um, they're really surprised I'm actually not a spy. They flew through my passport and they're like, how did you get to Afghanistan? They're like 20 years old, you know, as you do. Um, they're a bit bewildered, but, you know, we're just hanging out together. And suddenly we start getting shelled. And then we start running downstairs, um, evacuating. Everyone's grabbing the gear. Um, the building starts shaking, rubble falls on the ceiling. I'm wearing a helmet, so I actually get hit with a little bit of rubble, and that would have given me a concussion or cut something open. And then we get to the basement, and there's a bunch of Ukrainian soldiers, you know, some of them women, which was quite nice to see. <laughs> um, and I just chilled down there as the bombing happened, calm as a cucumber. They were actually quite surprised. They invited me for a few more nights. I was just chilling with them. I got a escort in their military vehicle back to my hotel, which was surprisingly still open. Um, and then I just hung out on the front lines for as long as I could before we had to move back and evacuate. How did the your experience on the ground compare with what, what has been reported? So this is the worst thing I've ever seen, and this kind of made me lose hope in the media, like the last spec that I had left. So this was CNN, by the way. I was I was going outside my hotel in Kiev, um, and there was this other hotel for an extra, a very fancy hotel they brought the journalists in. And then I'm just having my morning coffee with a equivalent Starbucks in Ukraine. And then I see the CNN people, right? They're, they're saying, we're on the front lines. We're, we're, we're really scared. There's a shooting happening right behind us. If we turn the corner, there's a head's going to be taken off. And I'm thinking, wow, okay. And then I check Google Maps and we're 10, 15 kilometers from the front lines, you know, 10, 15 miles. And I think these people are just lying for dramatic effect. And then I, I look around the street and there's people walking their dogs. Uh, there's people just selling in markets right behind them. So these people are lying through their teeth to your face on TV and you're paying for TV subscriptions. And I saw that consistently on the ground. I even did this thing where I started live streaming in Afghanistan, sorry, live streaming in Ukraine with my phone and started walking in the middle of the interviews, walking past them, right? And then saying, oh, look, the amateurs are here and just pissing them off in general because they were portraying this as some huge war zone and they were risking their lives being here. But it was just in the middle of the city centre on a normal day with some soldiers around the corner just on high alert. Yeah, but there, yeah. I mean, there was a war going on in other parts of the country, but the, the CNN journalists pretending like they're in the middle of gunfire was not yeah. what they were portraying it to be. Yeah. Like at some point I was in the middle of gunfire, but truthfully, I, it wasn't anything crazy. It was just gunfire at the end of the day. But by the look of these journalists, you know the type I'm talking about, the facial structures and the, the voice and everything. If they actually went to the places I went to and the places you know you would go to, they would just freeze or just start crying and piss their pants, <laughs> start foaming their mouth. You know they're cowards. They're cowardly. They lie complete honest people they um they're like the joe biden journalists <laughs> the, yeah. joe, the joe biden I don't, well do they have dementia are they losing their minds too as they're lying to people <laughs> i think so, yeah I, well they lost a soul at the very least so that's one thing in common with joe biden anyway but um i hope they lose their minds because that's the only thing that's uh you know the train was evil so far putting it forward I think it'll be better if they kind of keep a little bit simpler and just return home and work an office job. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's like the perplexing thing is sitting here 
in the U.S., obviously seeing the footage that's being portrayed by the mainstream and then seeing what on-the-ground journalists like yourself and uh, Galanzo Lero, Galanzo Lero were putting out there at the time. It's very confusing. Like, what is going on? Like, obviously there is some conflict. There's no doubt that there's been uh, very aggressive kinetic uh, uh, warfare going on in some parts of Ukraine. But is it as bad as the media is portraying it to be? Who are the aggressors? What What is actually going on on the ground? And we talked about Afghanistan, leaving our weapons there and you being able to go and buy U.S. military equipment for pennies on the dollar and other countries being able to do that right now. With Ukraine, I believe today, the Biden administration just green-lighted another $8 billion for, for weapons relief in Ukraine. And again, as a, as a U.S. taxpayer here, sitting oh. here like, where is all this money going? $8 billion. Oh. Eight, it was either eight or three, uh, still billions of dollars. These people, I swear. It's not going to be Ukrainian people. It's not going towards their military. Maybe a small percentage is. But there's so many reports that get swept under the rug. Where there's some Ukrainian, uh, you know, bureaucrat or some person from their cabinet, you know, that's trying to cross the border with, you know, a briefcase stuffed with thousands, uh, thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, trying to cross into like, uh, I know, Macedonia or something. And there's there's hundreds of people like this. It guarantee right now it's just going to some person's pockets. Half it's like charities. Like um, most of them are corrupt at the end of the day. Um, it's, it's why Ukraine tried to pass a, a law for pro-gay marriage. They just want to give in to the U.S. agenda nowadays, just so they can get more funding. You know? Yeah. Huh. We should think of it. What, are, what, are, what, are, what were the actual Ukrainian citizens that you interacted with? What were they saying? What was their perspective on everything going on? So they were mixed. A lot of them are resistant people, so I've got to respect that. You know, they, they, <laughs> the king is coming for a while, and they were like, you know, home might have a hole in this, but I get to go to Germany for a few weeks on a free holiday, so I guess why not, right? A lot of them have been scummy and taking advantage of the situation. So on the grounds, there was a lot of Ukrainians uh, that were afraid of just men in cars in general, because a lot of men were picking up women and then taking them across the border as refugees and then selling them into the black markets, uh, you know, sex trade, that type of stuff, promising that they'll take them to some hostel somewhere in Germany. Um, so there's a lot of underground stuff going on. A lot of the soldiers, though, a lot of the everyday men in Ukraine are very high-spirited. So there's this crazy bond going on between the men where they're really robust, they're doing good work, high spirits, and they're clearly exhausted, but at the same time, you know, you got to respect them and what they're doing. Uh, they're just trying to keep things together. They've got family that's now, you know, 200 miles away, safe and sound, and they're just fighting so they can see them again. And they're caught in the middle of this whole uh, rapture, excuse my language. And a lot of the women, too, uh, a lot of them are a bit frantic. So I remember I was at this train station going from Kharkiv back to, back to Kiev, right? And... The train station queue wrapped around the train station, and this was a big train station. It wrapped around about four times, and the waiting time was about eight hours at negative five Celsius temperatures. And then when you got in, it was stuffed, and then you had to push your way to the train station. The women were going hectic, and they started pushing other women 
on the tracks by accident, which cause major delays. So women and children cracking their heads open on tracks, falling on trips. And that was never reported. Um, and they would constantly argue and bicker. But there was some people that were actually very grateful when actually putting up with the situation. So my friend and I, we bought a car in Poland, so the crappiest car we could buy, you know, $500 maybe. And then we drove all the way to the front lines and then picked up some refugees as a free taxi ride and drove her back. And they started crying in the back with how grateful they were. Um, one thing as well that didn't get reported on a lot is the old people. So a lot of old people have just been abandoned by their families. Um, you know, ones with dementia, ones that need very specific medication that they can't go a week without. Um, many that obviously were free to death if they can't get log fires or something. So I think it's like a zombie apocalypse movie, you know, um, there's extremes in every single situation, everyone's screwed. It's half themselves and half the people of Ukraine community. It's just, if you could think of a bad situation in your head, uh, like as a fancy, it's probably happening in Ukraine at some point. It's fucking terrible. Do you it's... think the same would happen in the US? If, if like, uh, I wouldn't say a war, but you know, like um, a major, major disaster, maybe, you know, Yellowstone or zombie apocalypse or, yeah, you know, just power outages. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't think it, it needs to get as bad as Yellowstone. Power outages are uh, a big theme here in some parts of the country as we have had idiotic energy policy like Germany has and other parts of Europe have where we favored wind and solar over more reliable baseload sources like nuclear coal and natural gas, and that's making our grid systems less secure. I mean, we have had examples of isolated examples of situations like this in the U.S. in the last couple of decades. I mean, Katrina is probably the number one example that people would point to uh, in the aftermath of that hurricane and the chaos that ensued in uh, Louisiana and other parts of the country that got ravished by that hurricane. Uh, they were out of power for, for weeks. And I mean, you hear stories, horror stories about the type of animalistic um, animal spirits that came out when when shit hit the fan there. I hope. And, yeah. I mean, they, they weren't even, even in a war zone too. They knew help was coming within a few days maybe. But then they, they still tore each other apart. I, I feel like like people in you know, outside of the central city of you know, each US state would be very kind to one another. But, you know, average city folk now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, the, the coastal elites, as they're referred to here, and I, I mean, I can't be a bit of a hypocrite if I didn't admit that I live in one of these major cities in Austin, Texas. Um, it is a major city, though. It's in Texas. I think Texas is a bit more prepared for this stuff, even though their grid system's not as strong as it probably should be. But um, I do think the uh, gun ownership numbers here in Texas would sort of create a game theoretical situation where you probably have more peace because people would just assume that everybody else has a gun so you're less likely to uh, fuck with them excuse my language um, but yeah no I mean one of my favorite stats I mean it's not my, one of my favorite stats but one of the most interesting stats for the major cities here in the US and I'm sure it's uh, applicable in cities like London and other parts of the world as well there's only two days supply of food 
in cities like New York City. They, they get their food trucked in literally every day. And if you had a situation where, say, we ran out of diesel fuel in, in the Northeast here in the United States and, and that food cannot get shipped into New York, there would be chaos within within a week. I mean, there's, I mean, there, there's that one saying the the only thing standing between peace and absolute chaos is nine meals. And so, if you can't uh, get your food into these big cities because you're dependent on just in time supply chain management, yeah, that could, it could get hairy, specifically in a city as large as New York with 11 million people. Yeah, exactly. And people don't realize too, they stick all their life savings with banks, which you know, don't care about you. And then as soon as the power goes off, or something goes wrong, you know, <laughs> the bank system's not coming on, but I guarantee a lot of people keep uh, cryptocurrency running, you know, on a more uh, skeleton uh, network, you know, that makes sense. And then obviously cash and everything will be good, but uh, the banks will fail and they'll abandon you and you'll lose all your life savings. It's just numbers, not actually anything. Apart from, apart from the other things. Um, this is why we Bitcoin. This is why... Uh, I mean, well, it has, it has... It's actually there, though. I mean, with with actual currency, uh, like, like with, you know, with, uh, with money in a bank, it's lended out and then it's created, right? If everyone tries to pull the money, there's a run of a bank. Uh, there'll be a shortage, right? There's not enough physical currency and there's not enough still digital currency to actually withdraw to. So you would actually have to just create extra zeros on the screen in some computer somewhere. One Bitcoin's one Bitcoin and the price might fluctuate, but you always have a Bitcoin. At the same time, it's become widely adopted and it can't be controlled. Because the first thing happens when the first thing that happens if the world hits chaos, like say uh, like a national Katrina, uh, they'll try and restrict money as much as they can. I mean you've seen Sri Lanka, right? What happened? They uh, they said you can withdraw like four hundred dollars a week equivalent, and many people have wanted to have surgeries that are like eighteen thousand dollars, right? So imagine imagine got getting told, oh sorry, grandma has to die because the government's big daddy said you can't withdraw money. It was it'll be the same thing in the US, but with Bitcoin, yeah, you can just do whatever you want. It's free. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Sri Lanka, Lebanon just went through a very similar experience um, where their government went bankrupt and they confiscated everybody's savings from the bank account at the flick of a finger. And you have very, uh, very disgruntled citizenry there. I mean, there was um, there was a story out of Lebanon a couple of weeks ago of a, of a gentleman holding up a bank for his life savings. I believe it was like $250,000 US equivalent. And he was holding up the bank and people, you would assume here in the West that uh, people will look at that gentleman and and say, ah, oh, he's a kook, he's crazy, he's got to be taken care of. But apparently uh, the the people in that city rallied around him and there was, <laughs> there was demonstrations yeah. going on outside the bank as he was holding it up in support of him. And it's... That's a scary situation we find ourselves in today. This where Sri Lanka, Lebanon, Argentina, Venezuela, uh, China—you name it. There's a a bunch of instances of uh, the fiat monetary system falling short and really screwing people over. That is driving people towards the edge. I mean, we've I wrote about it earlier this year. People really don't understand the intricacies of the global economy when we went into lockdown 
mode in 2020, all the politicians globally. Who knows? Uh, I'm not going to try and dissect whether their actions were nefarious or simply incompetent. They they happened. Whether or not uh, you want to push a certain intent on it, it, it happened. And at least what they're communicating is like, hey, we can just lock down the economy. We'll turn the light switch off for a few months. We'll let this virus uh, dissipate. We'll get a vaccine out and then we'll turn it back on. And uh, turns out that when you have a complex system, like a global economy, it's not a light switch they can just turn off and on. And two, two and a half years later, we're, we're sitting here in late August, 2022. And the negative externalities of, of that action, action of locking down the global economy are, are coming home to roost. These are very complex systems, supply chains, monetary systems, economies at large. And I mean, I think what we're experiencing now, I, I like to call it the global spring. I mean, you had the Arab spring in 2010, 2011, when wheat prices rose by a certain percentage in Egypt and the Middle East, you had riots there that led to the toppling of a bunch of, of governments throughout that region. And what we're seeing here uh, a little bit over a decade later is that same exact thing happening, but on a global scale. Yeah, I wish it would happen faster, damn. <laughs> but um, I, I really I really think it was nefarious, this whole COVID thing. And the funny thing is, the only funny thing about it I have to laugh about is COVID wasn't even an issue. It wasn't a threat if you were healthy and not eating seed oils constantly and, well, you know, a lazy slob. <laughs> um, I know there was some obviously tragic circumstances that happened, but it wasn't enough to shut down the global economy. It simply wasn't. No, I would agree yeah. there. I mean, I got COVID. Yeah. Beat me up a little yeah. bit, but I survived. It wasn't the worst ailment yeah. I ever came down with. Yeah, and you know what you got now? That's for music, right? So uh, next time it happens, you're less likely to get more sick, and then boom, you move on, right? Yeah, no. issue, issue of globalization in general. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I had COVID for a second time earlier this summer. It was nothing, <clears throat> nothing uh, serious at all. I was able to go about my day. Yeah, you didn't ask a good one to print you um, <coughs> and uh, anything like that. No, no. no. <laughs> but to your point, like globalism being a big problem, I, I agree with that. And I think what we're seeing is this, the pendulum has swung so far towards the one end of the spectrum, which is globalism. And we're in the process of it beginning to swing back. And that's, again, bringing it back to your content. I think it's really valuable is it really highlights, like, hey, let's just acknowledge that there's different people throughout this vast planet they have different cultures and different norms and different ways about going about their lives and we should be okay with that it's okay to have culture and have a distinctive one region and i think you're doing a good job to highlight that thank you man thank you also you go to some, you go to some of these places and I, I remember going to afghanistan and learning about how democracy was attempted there by the u.s have you heard of the story uh, they, uh yeah, so um, Afghanistan should be a country because it's basically a bunch of hilly areas that are separating one another and then some tribal areas in the centre, right? So you all these isolated tribal areas that hate each other, you know, ethnic groups like within Africa. And so democracy doesn't work there because every single group 
as a tribal leader, that tribal leader tells people to vote for a certain person that meets their agenda, otherwise they'll be killed. And then every four years, they don't see the issue with keeping on the same person. They're like, the president's alive, he's doing the work, so why do we need a second one elected? And then they kind of remind me how the US just keeps electing new, new people, promising change, and nothing ever happens. Same thing. Yeah, These people a, just figure out that stuff. It's a line from uh, the great British rock band, The Who, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. It's, uh, yeah. It doesn't matter. If it's Biden, Trump, Clinton, Obama, Bush, Bush one, Reagan, they're all part of the same monolithic federal government, which really has one goal, which is to amass as much power and to suck as much money out of the populace as possible via taxation. Do you think, do you think, um, if the U S had a dictator, who's actually a solid dude, like, um, you know, uh, let's say, let's say, you know, let's say um, a solid lad, non-satanic, but not like Christian lads, uh, had good economic background, knew not to print trillions in a crisis. Um, would you be happy with a dictator for like 10, 20 years? I honestly think I would at this point. Maybe not a dictator. I mean, now we're getting to like the hoppy in view of democracy, the God that failed and he would prefer a monarch to a dictator. Um, yeah. you, I don't know. I don't know. I tend to <clears throat> I tend to lean towards the founding fathers when they originally architected the republic. We're supposed to be a, a republic, not really a democracy. Yeah. I tend to I tend to agree with the way they structured it, which is this republic of autonomous states that do their own thing and you can travel freely between them, but you have to follow their laws once you're in their borders and just let states spin up their own laws and compete against each other oh yeah exactly it was just no, no <laughs> i'm sorry but now i'm now it's okay you got covid for a time <laughs> 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 but i i really think it's because globalization's happened everyone has this idea of oh we have to influence the uh the national government you know the one in washington right and so all these, it's mostly white women on Twitter and TikTok and all this think they have to make a huge impact. But at the end of the day, you have to look at your own community and your own little, you know, group of people in, in a way, such as uh, you know, a small town in Texas, let's say, back when they looked after the national, uh, sorry, the little regional governments. And then if you just look after eternal policies right there, everyone would be happy. But now that everyone wants to pull and take part of the national government and you know, take their little drink of blood, and then the entire country just going to crap in general. <laughs> you got yeah. you got I got another water to clear my throat, but no, I agree with that. And yeah. I mean, even before yeah, that, I'm like drinking we, from my Taliban mug right now. Anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs> mm, I'm drinking whiskey from there. You know, piss everyone off. <laughs> both sides. <laughs> piss everybody off. Get the Taliban yeah. mug, put some whiskey in it. Piss off the uh, yeah. the UK government. The Taliban well, at the same time. Actually, I got a thought. What's your idea? What's your opinion on the UN in general? I'm sure it's positive, right? I think the UN should be abolished. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I hung out in UN refugee. Sorry, I hung. I hung out in a um, UN camp, one of those compounds, um, during my stay in Afghanistan. So I was with them at lunch and dinner every single day. And these people are incredibly racist against Afghans and people in general. Um, but at the same time, 
they're morally corrupt in their own subsection. They're, they're morally corrupt in every single way. They hate mass immigration and they hate the people they claim to help. They have this morally superior um, mindset where they think, you know, they're the best God gift to earth because they gave one man uh, a peanut or something, you know, for lunch, or to eat their fancy dinners. Um, they think, you know, it should be a gift just to travel to a different country and no one should be able to do it. Um, they they also had stuff like this as well. And they were drinking alcohol out of their little flasks that they managed to sneak in into Afghanistan in front of the Muslims and everything in the streets and also in the compound that was served their food. Uh, they were wearing Gucci and Chanel um, burkas, like the women were, showing half their hair. It's like the UN has a huge disconnect. And these are people trying to unify the world as well. So that doesn't tell you exactly what our leads are like. It's the same thing with normal government. We have no idea. Yeah, are they trying to unite the world, really? Again, going yeah. back to these Orwellian doublespeak naming, uh, whether it be an act or a whole organization, the United Nations doesn't really want to unite people. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to unite. I want to say a little bit interesting, you know? I want there to be a little bit of competition, maybe. I'm not saying war, but, you know, I wouldn't mind uh, any economic war if it's once in a while. Keep them strong, you know? Yeah, competition. That's <laughs> uh, how we got here today. It's how we have the ability to uh, stream this video and this audio across the Atlantic Ocean and have this conversation. It was a competition between different economies across the world. Yeah. It was a Soviet of the U.S. and then they thought, oh, instead it would be good for secret communication and boom, it came to us. Right? Yeah. I, I would love I would love us to have like a really manly, hyper-masculine dystopia, but we're, we're the gayest dystopia right now, aren't we? Oh yeah, we're deep in the dystopia. That's the craziest part is people don't realize that they think they're living in a free world, but they live in a, a modern day dystopia. That's why I actually think, again, going back to like the pendulum reaching the far end of the spectrum and beginning to swing back. I know you said we may need a, a bit more decay to happen, but I think we're in the midst of the decay. We're in one of those situations where you don't really realize what's going on in the midst of it. It'll only be recognized in posterity when it's written about in history books. People, I've, I've said this on the show <clears throat> before many times, somebody in a history book at some point in the future will pinpoint a date before today, probably around 2008 where hyperinflation started. Uh, they'll, they'll pinpoint the fall of the American empire at some point, at some date before today. Um, we yeah. just don't realize that it's happened yet. Um, the pinpoint for 1965 immigration. <laughs> <laughs> we, we would argue... Here we would argue 1971 when Nixon, uh, with Bretton Woods too, when Nixon officially ripped us off the gold standard for good. Yeah. You, you need the gold standard, honestly. Well, that's why Russia's economy is doing so well now. Even the Afghan economy, they're, I think they're tied somewhat to the gold standard still, right? So the Taliban actually a little bit more stable than you know Europe and you guys, right? Actually, that's one thing about Afghanistan too. Crypto is huge there. It's meant to be banned, but it's huge. I think you would love to hear that. And what, what was your experience with Bitcoin there? So everyone realized during the Taliban takeover that they can't access their bank account, right, with the U.S. set up. And eventually the U.S. is going to seize it if it falls in Taliban hands, right? So we thought, screw it, I'm going to download Binance or whatever and just stick all my money there and wait for it uh, to you know, settle, let the death settle, maybe I can bring my money out because either that or the Taliban takes it. So I'll take a risk. 
But then they realize now it's cut off from the whole global banking system Afghanistan is, right? You cannot use a phone card of one single bank in Afghanistan and that's run by the UN. So people started realizing, oh, we've got like a little circulation of cryptocurrency now and we can get it from the outside. And if we go to Turkey, we can cash out if we want to. But people just start trading in Bitcoin now. So I remember I almost ran out of money in Afghanistan because I overspent a little bit. And then I just went to my guy and said, hey, can I transfer you, uh, you know, 0.02 Bitcoin? He was like, yeah, sure. I mean, he gave me cash. Oh, yeah. And it's very really illegal, but the Taliban, they look the other way. They understand it's necessary sometimes. You know, it's like same with TikTok and some other things. Um, you know, it's just one of those, you shouldn't abuse it. Well, it's interesting too, because there's been actually a lot of scholarly inspection into Bitcoin as a Sharia compliant currency due to the fact there's no usury built into the system since it's fully reserved. It's not fractionally reserved and you're not uh, making an interest rate on savings or anything in Bitcoin. So there, there are some Islamic scholars out there in the Bitcoin world that would argue that Bitcoin is Sharia compliant. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there were some arguments saying it isn't <clears throat> the price fluctuates so much. And then someone just went, hey, wait a minute, our currencies are terrible. Look how much they fluctuate. Bitcoin's more stable than us. And that was during the early days of Bitcoin. So it is widely accepted, especially around the 20 to 30 year olds. They use it constantly. Like, um, I did see some posters as well in bakeries in Afghanistan. You know, they've got normal bakeries there. You could pay in cryptocurrency. Really? Yeah, it's great. Um, I mean, you've seen how in Eastern Europe, too, they've got cryptocurrency everywhere. They've got like Bitcoin stores and Bitcoin ATMs all dotted around, same with Poland, uh, Greece, and some areas. In Afghanistan, you know, if they if they let it settle for a few more years, it's guaranteed they'll be like back in the economy. I feel. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. that's part of the thesis, right? Uh, is that I mean, since Bitcoin cannot be censored, it provides fundamental utility for again whether you agree with them or not. You, the people of Afghanistan need to use money. If you sanction them off of SWIFT, off of the Federal Reserve banking system, I would argue that's a human rights violation. You're, you're preventing the ability for individual law-abiding citizens in another part of the world. You may not agree with their religion or the government structure that they live under, but they do have the right to try to better their lives by producing for their local economy and providing value to their local economy. And what the Western world has done by weaponizing the monetary and payment systems is again i think it's a human rights violation in bitcoin that's how it's going to succeed it's not because educators like myself are going to get out there and make a good case for bitcoin because at the end of the day bitcoin just works and there's nothing anybody can do yeah. to stop it it's uh it's when all else fails and you have no Alternative to turn to, Bitcoin is going to be there for you. It is a peer-to-peer -peer distributed cash system that will propagate transactions in a distributed fashion. And the way the mining aspect of Bitcoin works, it's globally distributed as well. So even if somehow the U.S. government tries to sanction Afghan citizens from using the Bitcoin network by telling United States miners not to include their transactions in a block, number one, it would be hard to identify those transactions uh, if uh, Afghan citizens are using Bitcoin correctly. Uh, but even if they were, let's just play it through the scenario that they are able to identify them and put them on the list 
in some way or form. Luckily, there are miners in that part of the world, particularly Iran, and there may be some in Afghanistan as well that are contributing to the addition of of new blocks to the ledger, and they'll include those transactions. Um, so it's it's a very powerful tool, and I think countries like Afghanistan, Lebanon, Argentina, Venezuela, these countries with terrible currencies, Turkey now, um, that can their citizens cannot rely on their local currency or the U.S. dollar back system. Uh, they can't depend on their local currency because it's shit because they're printing too much of it and they can't depend on the dollar because the Western world has decided to cut them off from that system. Bitcoin is that alternative that's going to be there for them. I mean, you're going yeah. to Sudan, similarly down there. The African continent has been <clears throat> essentially enslaved by the um, the fiat monetary banking system. I mean, there's the, a really good story, not a really good story, but a very good example of this is Senegal. They essentially had the French central bank um, facilitating their currency, the CFA. Um, and one night, the French central bank, these bankers in France decided, hey, we're going to devalue the CFA that the Senegalese citizens are using, we're gonna we're gonna cut the value of it in half overnight. So people in Senegal woke up to <clears throat> their money in their bank account being worth half of what it was the day before because some um, bankers in France decided to make a policy decision. It's completely ass backwards and evil at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean honestly, it is slavery at the end of the day. They don't want to really play the rest of the world. You know, they they're very frank about it too. <laughs> but it's just not really good and I remember this one story in Nigeria because I, I've been looking into gold mining I've met this guy, a friend who used to work in a Nigerian gold mine and they used to pay him $3 a day yes and they wouldn't do it in cash they would deposit into his bank account and the currency was devaluing so fast that he had to withdraw within like you know, less than three days or something but for withdrawal free if he to take out any money from the ATM anywhere in Nigeria was six dollars. So imagine, yeah, yeah. So imagine you earn like I don't know hundred dollars a day, um, then you work for three days and your withdrawal fee is two hundred dollars. <laughs> you know, it's in it's honestly insane. I mean, uh, these people are disconnected from what happens in these countries. I would love to build. I would love to just bring Bill Gates and the Rothschilds and all these elites. To Afghanistan, start shaking them and be like, "Look at this! Look at this! Look at this!" And I think they would finally understand. Um, you know, they—I think they probably know what they're doing at the end of the day. I think they're just straight up evil. And they do like the power, it seems. They do like the power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they—they they want a new world order. I mean, you've seen that. They literally <laughs> just take your face. You know, your life is going to be miserable. We're going to control you. Um, we think you're stupid. We think you're a loser. You're never going to climb a social ladder. We'll give you small trinkets every once in a while. Doesn't matter that your grandfather in the 1960s had a bad life. Um, doesn't matter. You know, this is how it is now. You have to pay a carbon tax. You have to drive an electric car that can be shut off at any time. It's all about control. What made you this way? You're 21? 22 now. 22. Yeah. You're young. Hair on the age, like 35 or something. <laughs> you were born in 2000? 1999. So 1999. Not really a kid, but close, you know? Yeah, I was born in 91. So we're bookending the 90s here. 
What? What are your? It's a weird one. It's a weird one. So I didn't grow up with a, with a father or anything or a very good family. So my early years were spent home early on. I, I, so I was in these communities and I hopped around thinking, you know, it's so great. And I was going to become one of those great guys. You know what I mean? One of the soy kids. Um, and then I discovered this app called iFunny. And at first it was just like offensive, dark humor that was interesting. And then it had some very interesting people on there that had this type of knowledge but years on. Like the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing, before it actually came, you know, to uh, to the mainstream, it was I knew about it two years before most people did on this app. Um it honestly was the main thing that kind of introduced me to Christ a little bit because it was perceived as cool on there. You know, in twenty fifteen, I it kind of dug into my mind a little bit. I kind of saw I seen the memes and all this other stuff and it just I grew through that community of it just culminate I can't say the word. It grew into a mindset almost. And then I thought at first, well, maybe I'm just terminally online. Maybe it's just, you know, internet stuff and it doesn't translate into the real world. But when I keep doing this, it really does work. Like if, if you grew up with, say, Instagram, you would have huge issues, same with Tumblr, same with maybe Facebook, maybe Twitter. But I've gone down a rabbit hole that's incredibly toxic. But at the same time, it's, it's correct. Why do you say sense. it's toxic? What's toxic about it? I, I think you you seem crazy for uh, two years before it actually happens, you know? I, sometimes I just run up to my friends and I'm like, there's a elite group of pedophiles that are controlling the world. You're firming up a mouth. And we're like, okay, take it, Mets Miles. And then you know, a week later, it's like, oh, Jeffrey Epstein arrested, molesting you know, half of California or something. It's just these things that happen, you know. I, I find about things weeks in advance and then it hits the mainstream and everyone's like, damn, you're right, Mars. Um, and I've kind of got to the point where I disregard sound device and it somehow works out, so it encourages me to do it again. What, what kind of sound advice are you ignoring? Don't go to a war zone for a hot day. Don't... Um, don't take your money out of the bank and invest in cryptocurrency or the S&P 500. Um, don't drop out of university and then do an online degree that only takes one year and $1,000 compared to $27,000 for three years. Um, don't, um, I don't know, don't work an online job and outsource it and then profit the difference. That type of stuff. I, I always find like really stupid shortcuts. It's like watching medical soul breaking bad, you know, you see them pull some things and then you think, wait, you can do that in real life and you just can. The whole world's a theater and you can just kind of play along and cut in line and then somehow it works. Yeah, you can you can manifest your own reality and bring like, yeah. better values like for, into the world. Yeah, like for example, um, one thing was in order to go South Sudan, you need a visa, right? And to get the visa, you need to um, you need to have a tour guide. And a tour guide costs me three thousand dollars because no one wants to go to South Sudan. It's hell on earth. Right? So what I did, I went on my government website and created my own company. You can search this on Company House in the UK, by the way. Global Tours Limited. I registered my company for twelve dollars roughly, and then I wrote to the embassy saying, um, "I'm a registered tour company in England, named Miles Routledge, um, Global Tours Limited." I want to give myself a tour and I will keep myself safe and I ensure myself and I will look after myself. 
and they approve my visa. <laughs> and it's a most bureaucratic nonsense. Same with Afghanistan, same with every other country. You just abuse a system and it works and it shouldn't work. You know what I mean? In any normal sense of state of mind, if this happened a hundred years ago, they would knock you out. But nowadays, like you said, it's a clown. And you've probably done similar things where you've had to deal with some nonsense and you have the easiest, dumbest solution and somehow it goes through. Yeah. Yeah. I have had some of those situations, not as not war zones or anything like that, but I've snuck into VIP sections uh, that I wasn't supposed to be in. I've finagled. <laughs> I, I mean, I wasn't even driving under the influence of alcohol, but one time in Missouri, I got roped into a DUI checkpoint in, in the United States. That's unconstitutional. Most people don't realize that. And I talked to the officer, tried to get me out of the car and take a breathalyzer. I said, no, I'm not doing this and just stayed steadfast. And most people would have gone through the motions, but I was just like, you can't do this to me and got out of that. And I, I think I, I have not taken it to the extremes that you've taken in terms of going into war zones and shooting guns with the Taliban. But I think mentally I have this very uh, aggressive aversion to authority telling me what to do with my life. Yeah. Same value of 40s, Christ and your family maybe, right? And everything else is just something that you can only give power. And if you take it away, they can't do anything to you. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's all mindset at the end of the day. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it's, a lot of the time it looks dark. Every, every few months I kind of have like a, I wouldn't say a small breakdown, but I kind of just sit on my desk for like five minutes thinking, holy crap, what, what am I doing right now? You know, things are going really badly. And then it, you pray and then it turns fine. And that's usually what life is. So if you want to go against the brain, the people listening at home, I, I highly encourage it. You know, do care you're at risk, but realize that's what the elites have done. But they've done it not ethically. As long as you do it with a good intention, you can play their own game against them. And that's what Bitcoin is, really. That's how it all started. And now look at it. Yeah. This is, uh, I mean, that's, I think that's what drew me to Bitcoin, was that aversion for authority and the fact that as I come... Studied economics in college, in university, and worked in the hedge fund world out of school, and really got a behind the scenes look at just how fucked up the financial system was, and decided uh, this is not working. This doesn't seem fair. Found Bitcoin at the same time. I was like, this seems much better, a much better alternative to this hamster wheel that that everybody's running on, which is the the traditional fiat monetary system. I, I used to work in wealth management, so I'm sort with a similar background from you, right? So you did more complex stuff. I just told people with their poor or rich, right? But I honestly think the financial system only upholds is because it's so convolutedly complex that most people can't grasp how stupid it is, so therefore the confidence is high until someone realizes a flaw, like in 2008. I, I guarantee, you know, every, every crash, there's always a Netflix series or story or movie about some autistic guy who was just really smart and actually asked questions and then realized, oh, this whole, this whole security or this derivative is actually retarded. <laughs> Why would we have this? I'm going to bet against it. I mean, bet against the entire economy or the bubble, whether he wins. I'm guessing you saw that. You just saw, like, why is this working? Or why do people believe in this stuff during your job? Yeah, for me particularly, it was, I worked for a fund. We traded currencies. Uh, among other commodities and part of my job was following central bank announcements and it was this was in like 2013 2014 when Janet Yellen was the Fed chairwoman and 
I mean, I've told this, I'm sure you freaks who are listening right now. I've heard this story, but I don't think you have miles and I'll never forget the one day and there was a FOMC meeting and Janet Yellen gave her comments and was nothing really special in her comments uh, that really affected monetary policy, but she was wearing a purple, a purple suit and uh, yeah. people traded the US dollar and foreign currencies off of the fact that Janet Yellen was wearing a purple suit. They, they said, uh, she's wearing purple. It's very regal. She's feeling strong. So the US dollar must be strong and she must be feeling very confident right now. And so markets didn't take the words that she said during that meeting, but they took the outfit that she wore and decided to tr trade on that. And I said, for the global reserve currency to be trading off of what one woman decides to wear in this little meeting in Washington, D.C., uh, and that trading of that currency after that meeting has a profound effect on billions of people the world over. It doesn't really make sense to me. I, I hope she wears a, um, a dress. You, do you remember that dress where they said, is it blue or gold? Oh, yes, you, yes, yes. Yeah, I remember if that. If you're walking like that, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but um, honestly, I feel like it's a, a strategy for CFA qualified people. Yeah. No, yeah. it's, it's, it's a clown world. It's a clown world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much money in the world, but it never trips down. It's just for these people to play sick games like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm very, yeah. Going back to your background, I didn't realize that you didn't grow up with a, with a strong family. Do you think that that experience in your upbringing is driving a lot of what you're doing now? I don't want to say filling a void, but trying yeah. to, find something that maybe you didn't have when you're growing up? Uh, I think so. So I'll give a little backstory uh, to my family. So I I had a mother and I was IBS. So I don't know my dad's so like never going to know him. You know, he signed my piece of paper saying, you know, never want to know you, love tick. I mean, that was the end of that. And we grew up on welfare. So it was very tough. And I was always intrigued about you know, money and travel and the outside world. But I was stuck in this you know, rough little town where no one became anything. And my mother had five five sisters, so I had five aunties, right? And including my mother, all of them were alcoholics, all of them were deadbeats, all of them were on welfare. And they were all like angry with themselves and each other. So I just, one day, I don't know why, I think it was because I was mixed with, you know, someone random maybe that I got some good genes inside me, I got lucky. And I kind of looked back and thought, this is terrible. You know, I, I do not want to do any of this. Uh, I actually want to make a name for myself or do something about it. So, you know, I actually wanted to travel outside my small town and I didn't want to drink alcohol. I actually wanted to go to church. You know, they were all atheists or they were claiming to be Christian, but they never did anything Christian, you know, those types, lukewarm types. Um, and it was one point I was actually made homeless because I, I went to university, right? I was, I applied. And my own mother kicked me out of home because I was paying her rent for my part-time job. She wasn't employed, by the way. I was more employed than her, so I was typically earning more money than her. And I was paying for my own food and everything since I was 14. And because I was going to university, um, she didn't want me to leave because then I would stop paying for rent for my part-time job, which was illegal, by the way. And she wanted to be extra money because very simple person, right? So she made me homeless on purpose so I wouldn't pass my university exams. So I would stay at home and then continue paying rent. So it was an incredibly messed up situation for like a 17-year-old me. Right? Because I know guidance, I know 
father figure, friends had disintegrated that home, home family life, you can imagine, right? It was a lot worse than I described. And then it got to a point where, if I'm being honest, I, I was going to kill myself. No joke. I was, I was realizing if I didn't get into university, and it's funny at the time, but funny now, at the back of the time, it was serious. And I was very depressed. I had a very specific plan, like very intricate plan on how I was going to jump off Birmingham City Library. So off myself because it was like I was going to become homeless. And at that point, I was homeless for like a month or two on and off. And I was still going to school. And I, I went through a breakup a few years ago that I was still bitter about. I had no friends. I was cold every single day. I had barely any food. I had no family, any support structure. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be homeless. I'm just going to off myself. I screw it. And the plan was in motion. I was on the train. I was on the train to that train train station where I was going to climb up that building at the library and jump off. And then I got results saying I actually smashed my exams and I was just incredibly lucky. And then, you know, I was in shock. I was convinced I was dead, right? I was convinced I was dead. In my mind, it was my last day. And I, I felt like I was walking in third person. I felt like a ghost. All the symptoms of something very bad. And then ever since then, I was like, damn, it must be a God. And then that's how... I strongly believe in God. So every time I've gone on my travels, I'm incredibly calm because it's nothing like that situation in comparison, right? There's no emotional connection. And if I'm tortured or dead, I still know God saved me that day. So I'm already in his death. I'm, really, I'm living on borrowed time, technically, because he saved me that day, right? God saved me on that day. And if he wants me to die, so be it. Fair enough. I, I don't want to die, but like, fair enough, that's his plan. Um, thankful for the extra days he gave me. And... If not, well, I would just carry on doing my jolly thing, doing some charity work as I go, exploring, telling some truth, and trying to be a good person. Holy shit, man. Yeah. That, is, that, is, <laughs> that is some divine intervention right there. Thank God. Yeah. Thank Literally, good, yeah. thank God for intervening that day. Because, I mean, I, I don't think... Many people who are listening to this know who you are yet, but I think that again, like I've been saying, the work that you're doing is extremely important. I think you are on your way to making a profound impact on this world. So again, thank, thank God for that intervention that day. Yeah. You know, it keeps you up at night sometimes just thinking about it, but then, you know, when you debate, you smile about it, you know, it kind of runs through your head, but, you know, it's just, I I had the special forces soldiers in Ukraine. Uh, I was just walking through the war zone as explosions going on behind me, like a Michael movie. Uh, it's weird thinking back, but I was just stupidly calm, more calm than I am at the self-checkout at grocery store because things annoy me. But they asked me why I was so calm, and I just told them like you know the similar story when we had a time to sit down, and they were like, well, "We've all had something similar, you know. It's just what guys do. Yeah, what, how we deal with it." Same with my girlfriend, by the way, she's she hadn't had she hasn't had a similar situation, but she's been, you know, in something that's comparable. And I think that's a separates between separates the elites in the world, the ones that live a cushy, happy life, which sometimes there's nothing wrong with that, right? But it separates the ones that actually build something of themselves. And you know, I can see why men nowadays love the Jordan Pizza or even like potatoes. You know, I can I can see that. Um, but hopefully they realize you know, Jesus Christ is the one that kind of brings all the advice together. Yeah. That's maybe an old rant, but that no. makes sense. That's no, a very, 
beautiful story. I mean, I don't know if yeah, beautiful is the right word. Um, but well, thank you, man. Could have been tragedy, but it turned out to be something beautiful, right? Um, we're here now. We're talking. Yeah. And like, so what, what in terms of making a man of yourself and becoming the person that you want to be with this extra time that you have on this world, what, what do you envision the trajectory of your life being like going from here? Mm. This is why I hope for, but you know, I don't always get why I hope for. So I want to marry my girlfriend, right? We're still, we're very Catholic, so we're obviously waiting for a lot of things. And marry her, five kids, five kids minimum. No, do I want five kids? I know it's going to be, I know it's going to be hard and I'm probably not prepared for it, but five kids, right? And let's say some of my ventures take off and I blow up on say YouTube or something, but I, I just hope it happens, right? So I can have the best of both worlds and I've got a nice cushy little bit of savings. I buy a house in the countryside, nice little bit of lands, you know, nothing uh, Bill Gates size, but you know, something nice. And then I can retire on say a dividend fund and my Bitcoin and my crypto is appreciating in the background. And my kids, you know, I homeschool them. And I've got a few books written. I've almost got one released soon. And I've got an interesting Wikipedia page, a little bit of infamy, right? Hopefully going down history or, I mean, I'm hopefully lying on my deathbed at an old age where I've slipped on banana peel and I'm internally eating, you know, no, nothing more related. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm surrounded by, you know, my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, and they can say, oh, you did good. You did good. I'm like, yeah, pretty good. I mean, I'll meet the big, big man. Seems like a great life. Would be nice. But, you know, it's probably going to be a war. It's probably going to be, uh, you know, uh, a shootout with the UN in, in a compound. You could have uh, Well, that's the frustrating thing about your story right now. Because, again, you're banned from most of the EU. <laughs> Definitely on some list. You're probably going to get I know you want to go big on YouTube, but they'll probably kick you off at some point. You're you're bringing too much truth to the world, and like like what you just described, you just want to live a good life, have a good family. Yeah, raise good values. I could twist her and say, "Oh, I'm just want to explore diversity in third world countries to show how uh, great they are and just build build into big nonsense." But I think they know I'll be lying, so. You know, I have this fancy. You probably have the same. You know, you have you have a few kids, but you obviously want like ten, right? Was it ten? Uh, I mean, I, I I would I would think five would be my number as well. I would have ten if I could, but uh, where since I'm a bit older, my wife's a bit older. We ten may not be in the cards for us. We have two right now. Uh, we're certainly yeah. having another, um, and it'll uh, we'll see we'll see after that. I'll just put it that yeah. way. I think like all guys secretly have the same dream of many kids, land, you know, independence of their job. So we don't want to work in like say Starbucks for the rest of their life. And then just a happy little retirement and go very quietly, you know, with a happy life. But with the way things are going right now, I think we've had too much prosperity in the West, you know, until recently and now it's going downhill. And there's going to be some big trigger event and everyone's calling it crossfire. So, you know, hopefully if I have to go, I have to go. Uh, in a war, let's say I go very quickly and into some glory, like some video game. It's probably gonna be like bleeding out, screaming. But 
<laughs> that's what I mean. So we, we have the like we call these black pill, white pill conversations here. Like that's a very black pill future where things just get to a certain point where you can't really turn them back, and we're just a product of the time in which we were born, and, and we're forced to fight that fight because of when we were born can certainly happen certainly seems like things could be trending that way but then the white pill version of it is we have this we have this ability to communicate to get good information out there to get different perspectives out there we have bitcoin which allows us to work outside of this evil system that is subjugating people globally and that's i try to stay on the white pill tip where it's like hey things are bad and so let's be real things are very bad uh, the clown world has gotten to extremely clownish levels that are very scary if you're looking at, at it, especially if you have children and you're wondering what their future is going to be like. But there's never been a time in human history like there is today where we have the ability to congregate online specifically with the communications technology that we have and to get these type of messages out there where hopefully... That's why I do this podcast. That's why I do the newsletter. That's why I talk about Bitcoin and these subjects so much is that hopefully this type of content becomes the, the go-to content for most people out there. And they begin to realize that, hey, you, you do not have to give over your autonomy to these quote-unquote authority figures. You can fight back. You do have some agency in your life and some ability to make something of yourself despite the fact that there are these evil forces pressuring you um so that i i completely see the black pill and i get black pilled myself and i have my days where i'm like this is where it's going this is just a product of when we were born but most days for me are white pill where i think we can win we, we have a better message we have better ways of communicating we're smarter than these people we're funnier than these people uh, yeah. And you, you can you can really change minds with good humor, which uh, I think your content does a great job of of highlighting as well. Uh, and I do think, again, talking about divine intervention, like with Bitcoin and the communication technology that we have today, maybe that was God's way of saying, "Hey, here's your way out, humanity. Mm -hmm. Here's the way to to get out of these demonic forces that are forcing you into this digital panopticon." begin spreading oh, these messages, propagating them, and not only propagating them, but then on the back end, actually implementing the, the messages and the values into your life. Oh, yeah, because hard fiscal currency, especially in the third world, has put more people into poverty than Bitcoin has actually uh, you know, ruined people. Bitcoin has only, ever, last, you know, ever since it's been invented, has made people rich in general. I mean, if you're an early investor in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, a lot of the time, you do make bank. And that's been excellent for some people that would never have an opportunity in this cloud world. I mean, you've heard Sam Hyde's story, right? Yes, I know Sam Hyde. Yeah, I mentioned yeah. him once, but I, I've seen his video about how he maxed out a credit card to buy Bitcoin, and everyone laughed at him, right? Mm -hmm. And then, he, you know, he made millions off it, off that, I think it was $20,000 he, he, bet, he yeah. uh, spent. And they and like, never back yeah, he never paid it back. They they called him. <laughs> yeah. They're like, hey, you need to pay us back. And he's like, all right, I'll pay you a dollar a month. And they were like, okay, yeah. we'll take it. He was like three dollars, one dollar, and they're like, okay, so. And then I think ten years later, they called him saying, okay, so please settle. And he's like, yeah, I've got like two hundred dollars on me. 
And they were like, yeah, we'll take it, we'll take it. <laughs> so these people, they become powerless before they could take away all your possessions. You know, if you need a laptop to work and earn a little money, you know, they'll take that anyway because they're soulless. But nowadays they're begging for you know, pennies on a dollar because they realize people have other means of storing wealth through Bitcoin and cryptocurrency on blockchain. Yeah. And it, it, it's never going back for them, you know. No, then again, this is a beautiful thing. And I think you don't even have to be an early investor. I think the stat still stands today. If you have bought and held Bitcoin between any four-year period that started in 2009. Uh, so if you bought right now, if you bought in 2018, you held for four years, you're in the black. Your purchasing power has increased. And I think that will continue moving forward as long as you lower your time preference and you're willing to save for an extended period of time, you will see your purchasing power increase. Oh, yeah. I think the stupidest thing I ever did on was, uh, <laughs> I, 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 this keeps me open eyes sometimes. I think it was when I got to university, you get given like a maintenance loan, but you never have to pay back, basically. And they gave me, I think it was $3,000 equivalent. And I thought, well, oh, I'll buy some cryptocurrency, you know, my first time. So, I bought one Bitcoin for about $3,500, right, at the time, maybe $4,000. And it went to about $1,000, and I, I took out, you know, it went up to $4,000, $5,000. And I thought I was a genius. I, think, I thought I did some 4D chess, and I made $1,000, like, in the space of two months. And now, <laughs> I, I didn't hold it, and I missed out so much, and that's that's my biggest regret. Yeah, you only have to learn that lesson once. It happened to all of us. Yeah. Very similar oh, no. stories yeah. of my Bitcoin journey as well. Yeah. I'm guessing in the Discord uh, that you're in, you, you see a million stories like that, right? I've never been on Discord, actually. Discord is... Really? It's, uh, I'm too old for it. It's, uh, you know, it kind of is, uh, it's a grooming ring a lot of the time. Um, <laughs> is yeah, it? true. Well, there's there's a secret underground community that iPhone is exposed, and it's probably going to come out in a few years, maybe. Or maybe it's just going to become niche, but um, there's secret LGBT group chats in Discord, right? In the channels where they just groom people and convince them that they are trans and so on. And then they get like sexual pleasure of transforming innocent little kids into like, you know, their little health spawn trans kids. Um, so they, they become their friends, they groom them. And then they tell their parents, they tell them exactly what to say or which doctors to go to behind their parents' backs or which counselor to go to. It's a massive network. Um, and of course, it's all anonymous. So it's very hard to like prove or stuff. But it does happen very consistently. You know, there's a lot of grooming going on in Discord. It's why you've got a stereotype of a fat, neckbeard Discord user. Yeah. Same, same with Reddit. Well, this, I mean, so this has been around. I remember AOL, AOL chat rooms where there was a lot of grooming going on in those back in the day. And this gets back to the values of strong family, something that has become completely put on the back burner in Western civilization, especially as both parents have been pushed into the workforce. It's hard. I mean, I, I don't think we should blame most people for this. They've been forced into the workforce due to the fact that the money is being debased at a insane rates and most people don't realize it but they they don't even have the ability to be the the best parents they probably could be because you have a situation at home where both parents just aren't able to be present uh 24 7 365 or a material amount of time that would allow them to have very earnest 
and honest relationships with their children and their children end up on discord where they're susceptible to being groomed. Exactly. Yeah. I remember those, um, I, I don't think it was specifically AOL, but I remember the chat rooms of early two thousands and luckily I was an ugly kid. So I was never attracted enough to get groomed. But, um, I, I, I remember those types of things and I don't know how I turned out okay, to be honest, because I saw you know, 50 other kids in my school had similar situations to me because it was like a rough neighborhood of Birmingham, which is like England's Detroit, you know. And I've seen a lot of people ever go to prison, a lot of them get done for like drug related crimes, sexual related crimes. And I think I just got lucky. I think I'm just so autistic. I just didn't become like backwards, <laughs> you know. Um, but I, I really do think women into the workforce full time, trying to be a man. It's it's the worst thing for children because they don't get any parental influence. Um, now the world is reliant on uh, you know a man and a woman both going to work, both very exhausted. Neither of them actually spend time on the home. I mean, still family values. They're so exhausted from working, and I don't think women understand it. But like, if I was a woman, I would love staying at home. Think about it. You got the TV in the background. You're listening to a podcast. Maybe you get to bake some delicious foods. Uh, meet up with some friends midday for brunch or whatever. Um, you know, you got some tough areas, but compared to working nine to five or some elite jackass, excuse my language, um, doing Excel spreadsheets, burning your eyes in a dark office, um, listening to some gossip by the water cooler, it's infinitely better to be a housewife. You know, I, I'm not saying I'm trans, but damn, if I was a woman, I would love that lifestyle. And <laughs> it'll be so rewarding because. Right. Imagine one day you get told uh, as a woman, uh, you having five children will produce a million children in the next like 50 generations. Because if humanity continues, that, that is true. If you have one child, maybe nowadays that child will produce like 50 others and so on. You know, it'll go down a huge family tree. I mean, imagine one day as a woman, you die and then you see that whole generational family. That would, that would make it worth it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of women are going to get triggered by that, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I can see, they, I mean, they aren't women of value anyway, unfortunately. Oh, well, hey, there's other respect for women in my life that are working full time jobs. And yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, the ones that, they're, they're the ones that have to because the situation's so messed up. It's yeah. now a cycle. Because they have to because there's no good men as well. So I'm going to trigger the weak, weak men, but they suck as well. Because they don't install good family values within the women, it's just self-perpetuating. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, I am lucky enough that um, my wife is able to stay home with our boys, and it has been adjustment. I mean, she was working in the workforce in the advertising business for a while. At one point, she was a breadwinner in the family when I was unemployed. After I decided to leave finance and get into uh, design, and she left work after our first son was born hasn't been back since and yeah it is an adjustment it is um it is uh going to work every day and dealing with people your own age and working with people your own age is very different than dealing with children and uh again due to the fact that both parents have been forced into the workforce there is i think we're going on generation two or three where this has been the norm trend started in 1970s and there is this yeah exactly quote unquote norm there's this mass rewiring rewiring that probably 
is underway. There is a lot of strong trends towards homeschooling and mothers staying home with their children in parts of the United States here after COVID happened. Um, I think that was one of the silver lining positive externalities of the lockdowns is people were forced to stay home with their families. And they were like, holy shit, I love this much more than going to work. Um, and people are trying to figure out how to make that happen. Uh, but yeah, no, there is this, this cultural, again, quote unquote, norm that's been normalized over the last five decades where a lot of people would take offense to this conversation that we're having right now. But I, I do think there's a lot of, I think I would agree that this is the way that people should be brought up. And this is the type of family structure that you should strive for at the end of the day. I'm not, exactly. we'll, get, we'll get called I, misogynist and assholes, but I, I can't not speak. My truth I embrace the if that makes me misogynist, like, I think I definitely have better culture myths. Um, yeah, I, I don't doubt if they call me like an ism or, you know, a, a certain word, a buzzword, you know, left throws around, I say, yeah, I am now. What about it? And their mind just explodes a little bit, you know, it short circuits. They think, no, no, you don't want to be that. I'm like, or oh, no, if you say I am because of these basic Christian values, yeah, I am then. Yeah. So, if, I mean, if I have a daughter, she's not going to be in set till like 16. I'm not even joking. I, I will be right next to her on the computer. She's not going on TikTok because I've noticed as well, as soon as women, and it's, it's more women because they get more, they're more susceptible to it, I feel. As soon as they get social media, they start falling themselves out, become really attention-seeking, start getting, getting or pretending they have mental disorders. Um, they they become politically radicalized and so on. I mean, you can you never see you know a 12-year-old, very rarely actually, uh, speaking about it, um, you don't see a 12 year old talking about feminism unless their parents talk about it, but then they turn 16 and then suddenly they've gone down the Tumblr route or the TikTok route and then they're ruined. But if you keep them, you know, homeschooled and without getting groomed online in these social medias, they turn out just fine. And that's what's actually happened to my girlfriend. She just never went into a circle. She grew up in Poland, which is very conservative, thankfully, and she turned out wonderful. You know, but everyone in England, every guy I've spoken to, has slept with 50 guys, has 50 mental disorders, doesn't know what they want to do with their life, drinks 50 times, uh, you know, a month, um, has bipolar disorder. Um, you know what I'm talking about, though. I think everyone does, but it just like it's normal. Yeah, and then you look into the mental health statistics of, and it affects girls, younger girls, more... <clears throat> um, more aggressively than it does the boys. There's plenty of studies out there of girls who um, engage in self-harm. The number of girls engaging in self-harm increases significantly once they get on social media. Um, I, I remember I used to be on a school council thing. I'm really done, but I walked out of this and there was a meeting going on with a bunch of girls sitting on a table and they all had their... their um, uh, your sleeves rolled up, school uniform in England, so you can't see the, uh, the wrists. But everyone, every one of their wrists looked like barcodes, you know, just cut up completely. And it was about like half the girls in my class, half the girls in my class have just been cutting up. And that was just the dawn of, you know, mass social media, you know, 2011 roughly, 2012. Just imagine what it's like nowadays. So, for 10 years, everyone's grown up and realized that's messed up. Yeah, if this happened in the 1900s, it, it would be like unheard of almost. Yeah, no, it was, um, I talk about this with my wife because 
She's a, a little bit older than me, but so she went through high school and most of college before Facebook and MySpace really took off. And she said, like, I can't imagine what my life would have been like in high school or college if I was on Instagram and saw my friends were at a party and they didn't invite me, like what that would do to me emotionally. Um, like just being, yeah. having access to that type of content would, would have affected me materially. Um, yeah. And then halfway across the world in Afghanistan, uh, the US was rocking up to villages in 2017 that haven't had outside contact in years and they would ask, are you the Russians? So there's a, <laughs> there's a huge disconnect in flow of information you know, that's damaging people in the West. And then people in Afghanistan that, you know, are just living in a village of 50 people, content and happy, not knowing the outside history of the last, like, you know, 50 years. Yeah. It, I mean, I think the world is backwards, I've got to admit. You know, I'm not, I'm not always having anything, but having that isolation of information and they're still very happy. Like, uh, like the Mormons, actually not Mormons, sorry, um, Amish. People, Amish, that's it. Those Amish people usually, I mean, you've got some messed up communities in the Amish world, but the good ones, oh, they're living the dream, man. Yeah, the yeah. Uh, the less orthodox Mennonite sects that will, yeah. you find them in Appalachia, they, they live incredibly. I uh, come into contact with them in Northern Tennessee specifically, which is where some of my Bitcoin mining operations are, and they just live off the land. And they're very happy. They're very community driven. They support each other, and it doesn't seem like a bad life. Yeah, I've got some contingency plans if something really goes wrong. Like if I become wanted for Interpol or something that's incorrect, and the whole world comes against me. First choice was Argentina, of course. Like my jo great, uh, my great grandfather. Joking, um, but. I honestly would just run to the Amish. You know, I mean, you could cross the U.S. border very easily, so I just fly to Mexico, go to the U.S. border, you know, but you find me back and say, oh, yeah, we got loads of free jobs here, I say, and then I jump across, and then I go to uh, the Appalachian Trail and then find these people and try and integrate into that community, maybe. Because they're never going to find you there, are they? You're just, uh, there's no surveillance. There's no, it's actually something that's beginning to bubble up here. In the states, in Amish country in Pennsylvania, which is the state that I'm from, in Lancaster, there's a an Amish farmer who's been growing livestock and crops without antibiotics or GMOs or fertilizers, even, and he's been processing the meat and selling it to people within a private co-op that he's been running for uh, the better part of two decades, I believe. And uh, USDA, one of the regulatory bodies here in the U.S is trying to shut down his farm for for not complying with their regulations. And he's literally just an Amish dude who's farming the way humans have farmed for thousands of years since we became an agrarian society. Uh, Apparently, yeah, you've got to pump uh, the animals with uh, soy, 50 preservatives, uh, red 40, uh, you know, cancer-causing chemicals, steroids plus estrogen, um, you know, microplastics and then it's just a healthy meal. I don't understand why these farmers don't understand the plant. You know, I mean, when we were cavemen, we were just dying because we didn't have enough soy in our diets and enough, uh, enough for microplastics, you know, with it. all it's gone so much better. Yeah, it's, um, nah, that's the rabbit hole I've been falling down oh, the last okay. year. So I, I've become like a big, um, 
we've got something going on here uh, called the Beef Initiative, um, where oh, yeah. it's Bitcoiners essentially realizing, well, it's this dude, Texas Slim, and a rancher here in Austin, Texas, uh, Cole Bolton, have realized that the, the food system here in the United States is completely screwed up, particularly the centralization of livestock processing that exists in the United States. And they're trying to create this uh, network of ranchers that will sell their cattle and other farming products directly to consumers. And so, uh, and not only that, but uh, sell them for Bitcoin too. Um, and so it's called the Beef Initiative. And that has led me to go shake a bunch of ranchers' hands uh, and buy a bunch of beef in bulk and put it in a freezer in my house. And I can tell you that the quality is far superior to anything that you could ever buy in the grocery market. Going to these farmers who treat their, their cattle correctly and uh, developing a relationship with them, more importantly, to understand why they do what they do, how they do what they do, and have a connection to them so that I have access to quality beef has been probably one of the highest leverage things I've done in my life in the last decade. Um, wow. You make me hungry. British food is just terrible. So a good Texas barbecue is known around here. This We've got this aura around Texas. You know, you've got guys who've got the best barbecue, the best meat. So when I come visit, do you mind if you point me in the direction of a good steakhouse maybe? So oh. let's see you know, how and lovely done smoked, you know? Well, uh, don't worry. We've got plenty of barbecue joints and steakhouses that will... We'll, we'll parade you around the city uh, and in the area. Maybe we'll go out to Lano and go to Original Coopers. It's a nice drive out in the hill country. Oh, that's going to be good. Thank you. Oh, my friend today, he wanted to go to Subway um, instead of <laughs> having a real hearty meal. And I told him the story about how uh, Subway bread has so much sugar in, it legally cannot be called actually bread in the U.S., and they had to uh, negotiate with lawyers back in like 2017 or something to reclassify it as bread and have food bribes and so on. But uh, yeah, it's gone to that level. Oh, yeah. And then yeah, again, I, you know, I, the money's fucked up, the energy's fucked up, the food's fucked up. You use shitty money to buy shitty food and produces shitty uh, chemical balances in your brain, which produces shitty thinking, which produces the shitty results that we're seeing in the clown world. It all, it all trickles together, every, everything here. Well, we're still going to win. That's the funny thing. So, you know, um, we've just been exposed to basically poison every step of the world. But we'll be victorious. They'll go down in history books. We'll laugh and dance on these satanic people's graves. Uh, Jesus will thank us. And then uh, Yippee Haye, we save the world at some point, hopefully. It sounds like a good plan to me. Yeah. Miles, we could talk. We're going to do this again in person when you come to Austin after you go to Sudan. We've been on for almost two hours now. Oh, yeah, gosh. <laughs> Sorry. No, I no. I, usually we do. We do two to three hour reps usually, but I, I want to make sure that we highlight what you're about to do as much as possible and how anybody who's listening to this may be able to help you out in your endeavor into Sudan because I think it's a really... Uh, a really cool I don't know, initiative, a really cool trip that you're about to take with really uh, it would be a really good outcome if you're successful in doing what you want to do. Thank you. I called the embassy today and it was a funny conversation. <laughs> um, so it should go well. Oh yeah. What, um, yeah, I can't wait for you to uh, have a successful Sudan trip. Come to Austin. 
you can sit in this chair right next to me. We'll talk about that trip, how it went down. And then, yeah, we can, I think there's some interesting things here that we, we can use Bitcoin to help supercharge what you're doing and make you as sovereign and robust against a, a demonic system that's trying to stop you from taking your ventures around the world. Thank you. Did Lewis tell you about the, um, the US border jumping plan as well? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's going to be interesting. That's what, like, I think like I didn't, I didn't even want to bring up Sudan um, during this conversation or the border jumping thing, because I don't think you should be uh, choreographing what you're going to do. You're going to get so popular. If you start talking about it before you do it, they're going to like try and find you. Um, and so moving forward, especially after the Sudan trip, because I think if you're successful in the content that comes out of that, I think that's going to blow up. And then you can't be telling people what you're going to do next. Or gonna, the, the people at the border are going to be looking for you. Yeah. Well, I feel like the South Sudanese, if you give them 20 pounds, you can basically just do anything in the world. It's the average salary per month is $30. So you can just do anything, really. Um, it, it's hell enough. It is hell enough. But I think I'll try and make something good out of it. And I'll try and bring you back something from the country that is kind of nifty, you know, it's kind of neat. I'll see what I can find. Hell yeah. Well, yeah. We're going to talk between now and when you go to Sudan, but dude, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. It's an incredible story. You're doing something extremely brave, extremely cool. And I think extremely important uh, in today's day and age, which is going out there, doing what you want to do, not harming anybody in the process and trying to bring pure, genuine perspectives to the rest of us. Uh, it's really cool. I think it's being well-received. Uh, your your Taliban video on YouTube. I was reading through the comments right before we went live, and people are really appreciative. Yeah. Where can uh where can the freaks find you? Uh Twitter. So it would mostly be um, if you search Lord Miles M I L E S on Twitter, I'll come up there, and all my links to all my other social media in my bio too. So I'll be blowing up around there, and hopefully. One day I'll be kind of everywhere for a few weeks and it'll be good. That's me, guys. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll link to your Twitter in the show notes. Um, I know it's getting late where you are, so I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for doing what you do. And this is the first of many interviews, I think. I hope so, too. It was good being on here. Honestly, guys, um, if you're thinking, is he just like what he is in real life compared to the podcast? He definitely is. So. Very kind lads, and thanks for having me on, man. Oh, it was my pleasure. That's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. Okay.